0: This is David Beeson, welcoming you to episode 64 of History of England. We've talked about the war in America and about how it merged into another world war for Britain. We've also talked about the way that, in turn, reacted back on the American conflict, in effect ensuring the success of the colonists. But what about in Britain itself? What were the consequences for the mother country of the American war and the wider struggle to which it led? Let's start by reminding ourselves of the balance of power in Britain back then. The king still retained significant authority. It was he who appointed ministers, including the chief minister or prime minister. Don't forget that this still wasn't an official title. He couldn't just pick anyone he wanted, however, as it was now accepted that no government could survive without the support of the House of Commons. So the monarch had to appoint ministers the Commons would accept, but with that limitation, the choice remained his. Many politicians, particularly the mainstream of the Whig Party, resented his having even that much authority and were determined to reduce the monarch's influence over government still further. I say Whig, but as it happens after Whig dominance of politics for most of the 18th century, the distinction between Whigs and Tories had ceased to have much meaning. Tories were traditionally associated with the Stuart claim to the throne, but after the crushing of the 1745 uprising, That was a dead cause, with practically no relevance. To have any hope of a career in politics, you just had to be a Whig, and all but a rump of diehard Tories now were. That meant a lot of people of widely different views were officially in that party. It was the case of Lord North, for instance. However, despite being ostensibly a Whig, some of his support after he became Prime Minister came from Tory grandees around the country. He was also a strong partisan of the king, while Whigs tended to defend the rights of parliament against the monarch. North, therefore, has the reputation of being a Tory prime minister, though he would probably have rejected both terms. He saw himself as a Whig and rejected the notion of being a prime minister, not least because it would have meant accepting more responsibility than he wanted for his government's failings. His official title was Chancellor of the Exchequer, making him the kingdom's principal financial officer, and he saw himself as a Whig minister, leading a Whig government, but facing a predominantly weak opposition. Those Whigs who wanted to see the influence of the King over Parliament reduced faced an uphill struggle. The monarch had personal wealth that enabled him to back, or refuse to back, Candidates at elections and constituencies with proper, relatively large numbers of voters, where campaigns were so excessively expensive that many took place uncontested. If you wanted to win such a seat, you needed deep pockets and the king could provide them, in return for the loyalty of the successful candidates. More directly, there were 60 MPs to whom the king paid salaries, and others to whom he provided pensions or other subsidies. The king had even cleared the debts of Lord North, amounting to £18,000, equivalent to some £3.5 million today. The power of patronage in Parliament was what shored up the king's ability to select ministers that suited his outlook. It was an outlook in direct conflict with the oppositions. To him, kings consulted ministers but retained the power of decision themselves. To his opponents... Ministers might consult the King, but they took the final decisions and were answerable for them to Parliament. The main faction within the Whig opposition was led by the Marquis of Rockingham. You may remember him. He had led a short-lived government whose main achievement was repealing the Stamp Act that had riled the Americans so intensely. Alongside him, though there were tensions between them, stood the Earl of Shelburne, who led the far smaller faction of former followers of the late William Pitt the Elder. Let's stress again that a government, to survive, needed the support of the House of Commons. Rockingham, like Shelburne, was in the Lords. Fortunately, he could count on the support of some remarkable men in the Commons. Charles James Fox was one of the finest parliamentary orators of his day. He was a brilliant wit, a gambler, a heavy drinker and a womaniser. He would soon start an affair with Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. Did you ever see the film The Duchess? Kira Knightley was Georgiana, though the love affair in the film wasn't with Charles James Fox, but with Earl Grey, he of tea fame, who we'll come across again later. Apart from living a scandal riven life, Fox rather spoilt his chances of achieving much in politics by being far too open in his opposition to royal power, and, more specifically, to King George III. There is no man, he once claimed, who hates the power of the crown more, or who has a worse opinion of the person to whom it belongs, than I. Justified or not, that wasn't a career-enhancing view at a time when royal power was still so crucial. Probably even more significant was someone we've met before, Rockingham's secretary, Edmund Burke. He was increasingly the intellectual motor of the opposition, driving its thinking and policy. He was as committed as Fox to the notion of reducing the king's influence over Parliament. Both men were equally keen on recognising American independence and ending the war there, a step which itself meant reducing royal authority, given that the king was utterly opposed to independence. Another key figure was Isaac Barre, the former soldier disfigured by the injuries he received at the fighting near Quebec. You may remember him speaking out forcefully in support of the American colonists. In early 1781, they were joined by a new young MP, not yet 22, who made his maiden speech to the House in February of that year. Then, as now the custom was for a new MP to make a maiden speech on some non-contentious topic, full of acknowledgements and a couple of witticisms or so. It would take the Speaker days or weeks to prepare, and left barely a trace in the memories of his audience. This speech would be an exception. The opposition had once again proposed a motion to reduce the amount of money made available to the King to pay sinecures or pensions to MPs. On the 26th of February 1781, according to a 19th century biographer, Earl Stanhope, a fellow MP called on this young man to reply to a government spokesman attacking the proposal, Lord Nugent. Are you surprised, by the way, that a lord was speaking in the Commons? That wasn't that unusual, because there were people with the title Lord who weren't members of the British House of Lords. They might be in the Irish peerage, as was the case of Lord Nugent. Or they might just have a courtesy title of Lord, as did no lesser person than the Prime Minister himself, Lord North. North was his surname. He would eventually inherit the family title, Earl of Guildford, at which point he shifted to the House of Lords. But by then he was no longer anyone of enough importance to attract the attention of this podcast. Among other things, Lord Nugent claimed he might have supported the measure if its proponents had proposed to use the money saved for public benefit. Although the new MP had declined the invitation to speak, his friend had spread the word that he would. So, when Nugent sat down, and even as other MPs rose to reply, a cry went out across the house. Mr Pitt! Mr Pitt! Mr Pitt! Yes, we had another Pitt in the House of Commons, another William Pitt in fact. He was William Pitt the Elder's second son. He was a son who, you may remember, had helped support his father into the House of Lords for his final speech. That was the speech that led to the seizure from which the old man never recovered. So, welcome onto the scene, William Pitt the Younger. What he delivered wasn't a carefully prepared formal piece on some minor topic. On the contrary, it was on one of the great questions of the day. And though he hadn't spent weeks drafting and redrafting it, he'd entirely familiarised himself with the subject matter. He knew what he wanted to say. Not that he didn't improvise too. For instance, to Nugent's criticism that the measure didn't propose to reallocate savings to public benefit... He replied that fortunately his greater youth gave him better eyesight, so he'd found the clauses that did just that, one of which he read out in full. The opposition was delighted. The proposal failed anyway, as all such attempts at the time did. Fox commented that it had failed by means of that very influence which it was calculated to prevent. The men in hock to the king voted to retain his ability to continue to pull their strings. Even so, Pitt had made much more of a mark with his maiden speech than most MPs do. Even Lord North, whose government was its target, commented that it was the best first speech he'd ever heard. Over the next 18 months, the opposition worked hard to make Lord North's life increasingly difficult. Things swung back and forth with General Cornwallis' victories in America lending temporary encouragement to the King and the government up until the disaster of Yorktown. Following that, there was blood in the water and the Sharks closed in with real menace on an administration whose time was clearly all but over. North pleaded several times with the King to be allowed to resign but George III wouldn't hear of it. What? Calling that ghastly Rockingham and his appalling hangers-on to form a government? It would be like letting traitors take over the palace. But things just kept getting worse for North. Motion after motion was laid down against his government. Time and again he saw them off, but each time with a smaller majority. In February 1782, the Commons debated America. Burke, in his searingly insightful manner established the link between the war there and the corrupt system of rewards and payments by the king at home. What had the American war produced, he asked? What but peerages and calamities? What but insults and titles? For Burke, the war had won places in the House of Lords for the king's supporters, but disaster and contempt for the nation. You may remember from chapter 62 that these debates culminated, four months after Yorktown, in a motion to prevent any further offensive operations in America. The opposition carried that motion, against the wishes of the government, by 19 votes. Offensive warfare in the colonies was over. That wasn't, however, a vote of confidence, so the government could soldier on despite the defeat. The opposition responded by bringing a vote of no confidence in North's administration on the 8th of March. Burke explicitly denounced its opponents as bought men, beneficiaries of the very system of corruption the opposition so enthusiastically lambasted. There was no man in that house, he thundered, unless he had a place, a contract or some such motive to speak that attempted to defend North's government. The motion failed but only by 10 votes. At the next attempt on the 15th of March, the Ides of March, turningly, the opposition came within nine votes. This was too narrow a majority for an 18th century government. The Whig opposition closed in for the kill at a third debate on the 20th of March. On that occasion, North attempted to address the House, but was shouted down, since members thought he was trying to shut down the debate. There were points of order shouted back and forth, but eventually North was allowed to speak, and he delivered some dramatic news. Those persons who had for some time conducted the public affairs, he announced, were no longer His Majesty's ministers. Now they were merely remaining to do their official duty till other ministers were appointed to take their places. The government hadn't waited for the debate. It had resigned, en masse, the whole bunch going together. North had the last laugh, though. Most MPs, expecting a long debate, had sent their carriages away. When proceedings ended so dramatically and so early... They were left shivering at the main entrance to the house as snow began to fall. North's carriage, however, was ready and waiting for him. As he swept through, he cheerfully called, Good night, gentlemen, to the others, adding, You see what it is to be in the secret. North was gone. A new government had to be formed. And how it came to be appointed would usher in another major upheaval that was all but revolutionary in its consequences. How's that for a hook to the next episode? Thanks for listening to this one.